0: Welcome back to the program. In an age of startups, creative destruction, public companies, and activist investors, it's hard to imagine the idea of the creation of a huge industrial empire run by successive generations of family. Few empires exemplify this better, though, than the history of Anheuser-Busch. From its Germanic roots in St. Louis, it's a story that is American culture good and bad. A story of ambition, philandering, divorce, substance abuse, violence, ...and family feuds. All told, a saga as American, as the beer itself. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, William Satter. He's a veteran journalist, a best-selling author, who spent 12 years as a staff writer at the LA Times, where his groundbreaking coverage of the entertainment industry produced a long string of exposés. It is my pleasure to welcome William Satter to the program to talk about... ...Bitter Brew, the Rise and Fall of Anheuser-Busch, and America's Kings of Beer... William Sader, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Uh, thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Great to have you here. What was it about the Bush story that really drew you to it initially?
1: Well, uh, the main thing was having grown up in St. Louis, uh, you know, you, you, I was familiar with the story. Uh, it, you know, the, the, the Bush family, where they were our Kennedys. Uh, uh, so, so you kind of grew up, they were part of your life, uh, all, all during the fifties when I was coming of age, uh, and, uh, Budweiser and the Cardinals and the Clydesdales, that was all part of, or of, the, the, the mix of growing up in St. Louis, uh, and I always thought it was a great story, and then, you know, it took a long time after I became a reporter that, uh, many years had passed, uh, from growing up there, that I was given an opportunity, uh, to write the book, because... I was introduced to Adolphus Bush IV, who was, you know, a descendant of the original um, uh, founder of the company, and he started talking, and we started talking about books, of course. And he was interested in having a book written about his family, uh, and, you know, was I interested in doing it. He was going to try and hire me to do it. And I said, well, I don't do that. I don't write books for hire. And he said, well, how would it work? And then uh, and I said, well, it would work this way. You would tell me everything, and then I would own the book. Uh, he, he was good with that. He not like he needed the money or anything. So he just wanted the story told and And I jumped at it because the Bush family had never spoken to, to a reporter. There'd been another book, uh, you know, or two over the, over the years about, you know, their background are about to take over anheuser Bush in 2008, but the family had never sat down and talked about what it was like inside the family, what it was like inside that famous estate known as Grant's farm, uh, in St. Louis. And uh, and that was the stuff that even people in St. Louis had never heard. So, you know, and, and I, I saw it as a way of telling a story of, a, you know, 150 years of American history as told through a beer company that everyone knows. But nobody knew the family. Outside of St. Louis, the Bush family was unknown. Uh, because, you know, even though the founder, Adolphus Bush, uh, Bush, the original Adolphus Bush IV, he was as rich as, you know, Rockefeller and those guys. He was a big deal back in the day, but he was in St. Louis, so he didn't get the ink. Uh, so anyway, that's the long answer to why I did it. I, I jumped at the chance.
0: It, it also is, as you touched on, and I, I mentioned in the introduction, it is a very American story. It does tell oh. 150 years, as you say, of American history within the story of this family and this company.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the story of Anheuser Busch as an independent company—just the company itself—runs from you know three days uh, after Lincoln was was inaugurated to the week that Obama was elected. I mean, that's that's quite a quite a span, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was. I was I couldn't wait to, to sink my teeth into it.
0: Talk a little bit about trying to look at it in the context of today, and and in some ways. You could imagine younger people, even younger people that are interested in the story, not quite getting it because it really brings a time and and a view of business and families that's so disconnected from reality today.
1: Yeah, it, that's true. Um, you know, but, but again, young, young people don't read that many books. I, I think so. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> you know, if you if you try to aim your book at them, you're going to be in trouble. again with, but but I saw it as as I, as I started, you know, researching it and finding out more than you know than I'd ever found out before. I realized that this was the ultimate craft beer success story, because when they started out, they were the littlest, most struggling brewery among forty. In this town, in this you know German American town on the banks of the Mississippi, and I mean this was back back in the beginning, you know you 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 sold beer in your neighborhood. It was literally hyper local, and your territory was as far as you could carry that beer on a horse drawn wagon. That was it. So they were all craft brewers, and they went from that being the littlest of those guys into an international colossus. Now that's you know again the. the, the Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser doesn't have a, a great name among the craft beer generation, uh, but when you talk to young people who have read it, they're struck by how admirable a lot of the, the things that, that the company did when they started out and, and how about their, their fierce... Uh, 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 determination to keep up the quality and not to cut corners and not do things that, that compete with Schlitz the way Schlitz, you know, went about cutting corners. And, and uh, you know, and they're struck by that because that's very much in keeping with the, with the craft brewing sort of uh, uh, mindset.
0: There's also the point at which pasteurization comes to them, and they're really the first to pasteurize the beer so that they could ship it longer distances. <clears throat>
1: Well, that's true. That was, that was Adolphus, the, the first guy. And that was the key to the whole thing. He read about pasteurization. No one had pasteurized beer anywhere, not in the world. He read that they were starting to do it with with wine, and I guess they had done it with, with milk or something. I, I'm not sure about that. But he thought, well, let's try that. This. this would be great, because he saw that if you could do that, if you could pasteurize it so that it stayed fresh longer, you had a leg up on everybody, and that was it. The minute he did that, he could ship his beer out of state. I mean, there was no there was no uh, uh, refrigeration back then. One of the reasons that St. Louis became a a big um, uh, beer town uh, was that the the city was was uh, underneath the sea. There were all these caves uh, that were cool, so you could make your beer and store it for sometimes, which expanded the amount of time you know that you could you could keep it uh, before it went bad and 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 and. The German style of beer, lager beer, is aged beer, so that that all worked to its favor. But the minute Adolphus figured out that you could you could pasteurize it, it worked, and put it in bottles, you could he could put it on a train and take it to in Nebraska or wherever else. And that was it; they were off and running. They, they were unstoppable. And by the by the uh, by the turn of the uh, the twentieth the century, they were the they had the first national brand of beer.
0: Talk a little bit about vertical integration and the way that they did that in in ways that are very modern, really.
1: Well, yeah, I, as I say in the book, he he was in, uh, he was uh, a proponent of uh, uh, vertical integration before there was a name for it. Right. He was more of an industrialist, really, than a brewer. He didn't much care for beer; he was a wine drinker. Uh, but he, he, you know, by, by marrying into a family, he sort of took over in, uh, uh, a struggling brewery. And he what he did was he thought, Okay, let's see, I'm paying I'm paying a bottler for this isn't I'm gonna buy the bottling company well I'll pay myself. Uh he bought he bought railroad cars. He bought. He built his his own railroad. He, you know, every step of the, in the process, he would he would take over and own it, so he would he would uh, you know be paying himself and, and cutting down his costs. And he extended this all the way to the end of the, of the chain, where uh, he would he would uh, uh, invest in in saloons and taverns. He would he would pay for a guy's uh, liquor license. He would pay for all the startup costs. He would he would pay utilities. He'd pay a couple months rent. And the only the only agreement was, which was the big agreement, was you only will, you will only sell uh, uh, Anheuser Busch products, and that that was so successful uh, that it forced all the other brewers to to sort of follow suit. They couldn't compete unless they owned their own um, um, you know taverns and saloons, which then eventually you know uh, led to all kinds of abuses because their their partners in in these in these taverns uh you know would would uh, try and get an edge uh, an additional edge by you know running uh, uh uh brothels in the back room and gambling and they'd pay the cops off to to uh uh um you know look the other way so that it's got the big brewers you know sort of in in bed with with corrupt practices. And so uh, when 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 they finally when prohibition came along, one of the things about prohibition was when the, when the the the, the, the uh, temperance movement started, they were against whiskey. They didn't have beer on uh, in their sights at all. Uh, they were that was just sort of off. The beer was something else. They were after demon the demon whiskey that was killing America, until they found out that, that they realized that it was the brewers, most of whom were German, the big ones. By God, they were foreigners, owned all the talents. And so then that put that then then they focused on the breweries and they went after everything, uh, and it sort of came back. You know those practices, the, the thing that, that that he pioneered of owning your own taverns, you came back to buy them. Uh, and then of course when prohibition was was ended, uh, and 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 uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a you know big proponent of ending it. Uh, in exchange for putting beer back on sale, even ahead of the end of, of Prohibition Against uh, uh, Spirits, uh, they set up the system where it's, okay, well, we're going to put you back in business, but you can't own taverns anymore. the can, bre- Brewers cannot own the retail establishment, and that is still in place today. That's right. the three-tiered system uh, where you have a distributor in the middle who is supposedly an independent businessman.
0: Talk a little bit about how they countered the anti-German sentiment during World War I.
1: Well, they you know they just did it by trying to appear super American, um, you know, uh, Adolphus uh, and his son August, uh, August the first. You know, they just you know did everything they could. They bought bonds. They donated to the Red Cross. Uh, prior to prior to the First World War, the official language at the brewery was German. Uh, they spoke German. There were pictures and statues of Bismarck and all over the place. Very Germanic. Uh, operation and they changed all that they changed the they changed the uh uh the uh your logo on on the can They looked austrian so they changed it i like think there was a double eagle on it something like that so they changed it to make it look more like the american eagle uh and uh and they didn't they didn't really uh succeed much during the first world war budweiser sales just went in the toilet you know uh and during the first world war the second world war by that time you know they they become People didn't see them so much as a as foreign-owned breweries. They were they were more part of the American fabric by then. So there was not a uh, a big backlash against the German breweries, uh, you know, in in the Second World War. I mean, it was the Germans that brought beer, you know, that made America a beer-drinking country. There's no doubt about that. We were not a beer-drinking con- country before the German the mass uh, German immigration after 1848. Uh, they brought. Beer, they like beer, and, and they came in, millions of them came in, and they built breweries. They came in with more money than the Irish did. The Irish arrived starving, you know, and they didn't have any money. The Germans built their own breweries to, to, to slack the thirst of their, and they drank their own kind of beer. They 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 wanted lager beer. That's what the Germans drank as opposed to the, the ales and porters that the, the Irish and the English drank.
0: Talk a little bit about the family's penchant for luxury and the fact that that they enjoyed all this money they made.
1: Well, yeah, they yeah, there was a they, they actually came up with Saint Louis. They came up with a, with an adjective that was that was to describe ostentation. It was it was it was bushy. That's very bushy, meaning it's overdone, over you know, over overwrought. Uh, you know, they did everything in the grandest of style, and that became sort of a, a that was a family thing. Uh, it's sort of a German royalty sort of thing, I guess. But it also became part of the company's DNA, too. I mean, that's that's their 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 way of doing business through the years was, you know, we go first class. We pay more than everybody else. We, you know, everything is the best. We have the best ingredients. We don't just have hops. We have Bohemian hops. We go to Bohemian them. You know, everything down the line was, you know, and when you worked at Landheiser Bush in St. Louis, you were among the favorite few. You worked for the, the, the you know, the, the, the flagship company in St. Louis. You were the best. You know, you had the best benefits. You had the best, you know... Everything. I mean, when, in the late 1800s, the guys who worked in the brewery, you know, as part of their part of their, they, they worked tremendous hours. I mean, it was a hard life. They worked from 4 a.m. until 7 p.m. like six days a week, and, and they and they originally it was seven days a week, but they got a day off. But they but they were provided with 23 beers a day that they could <laughs> consume on the job. You know, think about that. I mean, I did the math at one point. I was like, I can't remember. It was like what. 5000 beers you know uh, per man per year that they had or whatever it was it was like wow You can imagine the industrial accidents that occurred
0: talk a little bit about the family and 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 the successive generations and the ways in which as in many family businesses there comes a point when uh, generations don't really get along with the previous generation
1: well yeah they they went by you know um uh the uh the the german you know it was uh firstborn son you know uh uh inherited the company and and they sort of always denied it no no it was you know he has to prove himself but it never varied uh the firstborn son the firstborn son you know took over the company and it it, it worked for the first couple um you know and and when 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 uh uh August the third was born. I mean, Gussie, the, the third guy in line, who was the most colorful character. He was the quintessential American beer bear. I mean, the the, the the anointed one was given, you know, uh, Budweiser to drink before he had mother's milk, uh, so that the world knew that that the, the new king was born. Um, but it developed into a sort of a thing that if if you look at the pattern. Uh, in terms of, of, of the family, that the firstborn was basically sacrificed to the company. He was fated to run the company no matter what. That's what, you know, it was his job to lose every day of his life. And what developed was that then there was always a very, very... Tough relationship between the father, who was an authoritarian authoritarian king of the you know of the company, who who was highly critical of the son, so they had a terrible relationship, and and, and transition was very very difficult because the because the older man never wanted to give up the power really, you know Gussie you know never wanted to give it up. He wanted to die in the director's chair. And he had a son who wanted to take over when he was thirty five, so it built up all this tension. So while the firstborn son. You know, had a terrible relationship. The second-born son, who in each generation was uh, uh, the product of a, of, a, of a second wife, okay, developed a close relationship with the father because they didn't have the tension, you know, about running the company. They could have a regular relationship. So that and that repeated through the generations without fail. It was like you know you you just you you it's, it's sort of amazing to, to see it, that, that they did, and they didn't see that. I remember sitting with Adolphus Bush and his mother, who was Gussie's widow, and I'm, I, you know, talking to him, I said, well, it seems to me that the firstborn son was sacrificed, and they were both kind of like, wow, and they had never thought about that, but that was true, they thought, they said, that's, that's true, that they had just never thought about it that way, and she told him, you know, as I sat there, that she never wanted him to be part of the company, and he was surprised to hear that, because he never had been, but and maybe that gets into another area
0: there's also the way in which the, particularly in, in modern times the way in which the market for beer changed and they were a little slow to respond to that
1: well they, they, that was August the 3rd yeah he um, and I think it had to do with you know it was so ingrained in him the, the family history and all that—they were so tied up in tradition, and controlling their own destiny, and not getting into debt—and that all came from his father, and, and his grandfather, and his great grandfather, you know—and maintaining the control of their own product. But when when things started changing, and 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 the world, the, the business started going global. Uh, August the third. Did not get into the to the uh, buy into the trend of buying up brewers around the country around the world, which the, the competition did. They started merging and buying up, you know, old you know uh, uh, European breweries, you know, that were six hundred years old, you know, in, in Munich and things like that. And, and so he didn't want to do that because then you had to go in a partnership with some foreign person, and then they were going to be actually making your beer, and it was. Four thousand miles away, could you control that? And and so he would always hesitate, and he seemed like to all his people that they would they would be on the verge of making a deal, and he would scuttle it over some point where he just didn't want to do it. And in the meantime, what happened was they had always been too big to take over. Nobody it was things unthinkable that anyone could take over Anheuser Bush because they were the biggest, they were huge. But what happened was all these little there were some guys, a trio of guys in Brazil who were the you know. Uh, Bankers, but then they 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 were best best known as the they owned the uh, the Walmart of Brazil. They started buying up these little breweries and combining them and conglomerating them, and and then all of a sudden, you know, this company that hadn't existed four years before became bigger than anheuser Bush. They you know the company that ended up buying out anheuser Bush in, in an hostile takeover in. In, in 2008, had not existed in 2004. Four years later, they were able to buy the biggest beer company in the world. And <laughs> August the, the the third, who had been in charge, who was in charge at the time, um, he had had an opportunity to buy into these companies. He could have prevented that from happening had he invested a couple hundred million dollars. You know, in, in you know in you know in just a few years before. But he didn't. He didn't. He didn't want to expand. He kept focusing on getting him. He he was more focused on getting a bigger and bigger share of the U.S. market, which was the biggest market in the world and the most profitable. Uh, so, and he was going to go for sixty percent of the market, yeah, because they already had fifty-two percent. But he thought they'd get sixty. Well, they never did. They never got past his fifty-two percent.
0: In many ways, their their Americanism—I mean, all the things that made the beer what it was and made the brand what it was—is ultimately what prevented them from getting past a certain point. That's the irony in the story, I suppose.
1: Oh uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, they, you know, yeah, they they certainly embraced the whole American thing, and and uh, and I think it was control, and uh, you know, that 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 caused him to be short-sighted. And uh, he also there was also a problem of he was stuck with tradition in the fact that his it, it, it had to be his son uh, who who took over and again like you said before you know the first the firstborn the first of the firstborn worked for a while but like in all family dynasties inevitably at some point in the chain the guy who gets the top job wasn't the best candidate <laughs> you know he was just you know fortunate by by chronology. But really, wasn't it? And August the fourth, August the third, son. When it came his time, he he had some flaws that were readily apparent when he was in high school. He had issues that that were just sort of covered up, and and, and papered over. And again, his father he had he had you know he had you know substance abuse issues going back that early. And there was you know an, uh, an automobile accident in which a young woman was killed. Uh, and 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 I think that that was. Again, he erred on the part of tradition again, because the history of the Bush males was that each one in every generation, down through the years, had had a period of sowing their wild oats. It was expected of them, okay, now you take all, you can go anywhere you want in the world, you got all the money in the world, you can go to be wild, do whatever, lemonize, and that was okay, and then you come back, and then you're going to settle down, and then you're going to run the heck out of this company, and they all did it. They all went through that period. They came back, and they took them to come here. But when it came to the last guy, August the fourth, you know, his father kept thinking. I think he, he doubled down on the bloodline. He kept thinking he's going he's to pull it together. He's going to stop all this partying, uh, you know, and he's going to get married. And he was literally ordered to get married, you know, and and he did. But he didn't change his pattern of behavior. By that time, it was too. He was sort of too far gone, and his father really didn't get. You know that that this was this was an illness. That this was a uh, this was a disease. It's, you know, alcoholism or or drug addiction is not a matter of uh, willpower. It's not like he's just all he has to do is just suck it up, which is what he thought. So again, he missed that. Those are the, his two his two big mistakes. You know, August the third, and 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 you know, in his in his defense, he was the guy who took it the company into the stratosphere. He made his father into a billionaire when he finally took over. But he did have two, two things he did not see coming, and then that made all the difference. One was that he didn't go uh, into the international marketplace and buy, buy up other breweries and become and conglomerate and, and keep himself from being taken over. And the other thing was he kept, he kept promoting his son. And I think in the end, when, you know, when all of a sudden they were under siege, he saw that there was, they couldn't do anything. He didn't, there was no one to take over. He hadn't, you know, that August the 4th would not be a good steward. So uh, the best thing for the family and the stockholders and all that was just to let it happen. They got the price as high as they could, and then, you know, it's finally over.
0: Is it your sense the company might have been worth more had they sold it sooner?
1: Um... No, I don't think so. I don't. I don't think so. I mean, it was the largest cash deal in the history of commerce. Right. You know, it was. It was. It was. It was cash. I think they got. I think that the uh, the the way, the, way the, uh, the the Brazilian guys got it was they they the minute they made the offer they made, which was at like $47 dollars, something like that. I mean, the people who know these things, you know, could see that that's that's it. There's no, you can't turn that down because it's a publicly traded corporation. And the Bush family, despite the fact that they operated for years as if they owned the company, actually owned very little. Company they had, they had, you know, gone public and they'd sold stock and and they only owned owned, owned three to four percent of the company. Warren Buffett owned more of Anheuser-Busch. Than, than, the, than the Bush family did, which came as a shock to people in St. Louis, because since they operated and handed it off to one another as if it was their own, and they controlled the board, people assumed they owned it. They didn't. So you know, um, uh, my, I can't think what my point was there. But I was going to uh, anyway. When they made the offer, when, when the, the Brazilians and when they went in there made the offer, they couldn't turn it down because the stockholders would have sued them forever had they turned that down. I mean they spent the uh, August the third actually said so you know I don't want to spend the rest of my life in depositions which is what would have happened because it was they they were offering such a premium over what the stock had been trading at for 5 years which is what made them vulnerable the stock had not gone up in 5 years it stayed okay even though they sold more and more and more beer but the stock stayed at the same price so that made them vulnerable so there there was really no controversy and there was a whole you know book written about the takeover and all that stuff which you know, tended to make it like a really big deal. But there really wasn't a lot of drama, you know, in the takeover. They made an offer. The people who were on the inside really knew that that's it. We're, we're done. We can't fight that. We can't, We you know, we got to sell. Uh, and they managed to get the price up another $5 billion to $52 billion.
0: What's so interesting is the way in which it is still, I mean, the, from a marketing perspective, how they have sort of kept the Americanism of the company even today.
1: Yeah. Well, that you know, that was again. That was you, that you can go all the way back to to the first guy, uh, and he was a German. Okay, you know, he was born in Germany, he came here at eighteen, but he from the very beginning he 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 had a very good sense of Amer- American myths and you know and, and American sense about itself. To where the, one of the first brilliant things he did was, and it, it's it's astonishing when you think about it, he. That he saw a painting behind a bar, a tavern, in, in a saloon in St. Louis. It was a giant painting of Custer's Last Stand, painted by a local artist. And there were a lot of paintings of Custer's Last Stand. But there was this painting there, and the bar was was going into bankruptcy. So he, he bought the painting. And the thing was, like, huge. It was, like, you know, 20 feet across, 9 feet, you know, 20 by 9, something like that, a very big thing. And And this was in a – this was, like – 14 years after the actual event, so it was still fairly current, you know, and this was a big thing. Custer's last stand was still, you know, wow, in American myths and, 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 and all that. So he he then hired an artist to paint, paint, repaint it in a smaller version, okay, adding in more scalpings and things like that, making it a little more bloody, and, you know, picture, sort of, you know, picture Custer there, you know, with his sword fighting him off in the last, minute. none of which was accurate, but... He had this painting done, and then he he printed it up like you know. Eventually, it was a million copies of this, okay, and he distributed it to every place that sold Anheuser Bush, and they and they put it up on the wall. and It didn't sell. It didn't push beer. It just had the picture of Custer's last fight, I think it was called, and at the bottom it said Anheuser Bush. That was it. It was completely associative advertising. Uh, there was there was no picture of beer. There was no push to sell it. There was nothing. It just connected. Anheuser Busch with this iconic American event, and it it became the most viewed painting in the history of the world or something like that. I mean, something ridiculous. But they're still, you know, by World War II, you know, fifty years later, it was still hanging on the walls at the taverns all over the country. You know, people would stand around and look at it. You know, and it was it was a brilliant stroke uh, that really kind of established them and connected them to to the American thing, whatever that was. Uh, and 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 that became again part of the company's DNA. Their 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 sense of what America, you know, felt. And his 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 grandson Gussie again did the same thing when, when he, this you know someone decided that they needed to you know come up with something as, as they came out of prohibition to you know establish themselves, and Gussie you know uh, Gussie went out and bought you know uh, a couple of teams of, of Clydesdales, which you know prior to you know, prior to Gussie doing that and making them, and hitching them to these red wagons, you know, prior to doing that, Clydesdales were mud-splattered farm animals that that were used for hauling peat and coal and lumber. There was nothing spectacular about the breed, but he loved them, and he made them, you know, the symbol of of Anheuser-Busch, and, you know, and, and, you know, the idea of, Delivering the first case of Anheuser Busch coming out of the factory, coming out of the brewery a- after at the end of Prohibition, that midnight when the bell rang and the gates opened, the first case you know was taken was flown to 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 uh, you know Washington D.C. to be presented to to uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, and they had a team of Clydesdales waiting on the tarmac, you know, and they they paraded him down Pennsylvania Avenue to deliver it to the White House. Well, oh my God, this was you know this was brilliant, and it. it they became and he took he took that 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 breed of horse and ennobled them. He 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 bred them. He he became the guy, you know, and he raised them on his farm. and And it was real. It wasn't just, it wasn't just fake. They weren't renting these horses, you know, um, you know, for commercial. This was the real deal. They raised them. He knew the names of every single one of them, and he made them into the most you know perhaps the most beloved breed. You know, it, it, it's certainly in this country, to where I'm, I'm sure that the guys who now, uh, when they took over the company, would have loved to get rid of the uh, the uh, the uh, Budweiser, I mean uh, the Clydesdale operation, because it you know, well-bred you know, uh, two thousand pound horses and and austerity you know don't really go together. <laughs> but I think they realize that that is the soul of the company. You get rid of those horses, and you're going to lose so many people because they'll you know, that's, that's what, it's, it's two wedded together, that image and those wonderful horses. And, and you know, you can see by the, the commercial that ran, you know, during the Super Bowl come, uh, uh, game recently. And then, you know, it's just, there's just nothing, those are always the, the people's favorite commercials. It may not be America's favorite beer anymore, but you take that away, and, and, and you know, I think you may have maybe the death knell for them. And that was all the American thing, you know.
0: And finally, talk about the connection to baseball and the importance of that with respect to the beer.
1: Again, that was that was another sort of American thing, and it was part of the uh, uh, innate uh, genius of of, uh, of of the the men who ran the company in the beginning. Um, you know, Gussie, uh, the, the the third guy, uh, he he had no feeling for baseball. I mean, he was a sportsman. He liked. Hunting and fishing, and you know all kinds of other things. Gentleman sports. He didn't. He wasn't in team sports. But so the, the guy who owned the Cardinals um, was in financial trouble, and he was going to sell to a group of people, investors in 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 Milwaukee. And so somebody came to Gussie and said, "Hey, you know, we might be able to get this at a better price because the guy really would like to keep the Cardinals in, in St. Louis." And this was in fifty two, fifty three. And Gussie, you know, looked at this and thought, wait a minute, you know, I can deny a a, 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 a baseball team to Milwaukee, <laughs> you know, because that was our competitor city, you know, for beer. And it wasn't going to cost much money. And he kind of saw it as, wait a minute, so we have this giant 30,000-seat tavern sitting in the hot summer sun in St. Louis, and the only thing they have to drink is Budweiser. I mean, this was a good idea. And aside from the fact that also that the the, the Cardinals at the time they were a legendary pr- franchise, they were kind of America's team because they were the farthest west and I think for the South franchise, so they had a bigger fan base than the New York Yankees. So so along with the team, of course, came the broadcast right? So he bought it, and he was the guy who who who. Married beer to baseball in a big way. I mean, there was a guy in New York who owned the Yankees for a while, who who owned a brewery, but he didn't ever make any connection between the two. It was just sort of an investment. Nobody who went to the Yankees games ever thought of the beer company. gussie did it big time. I mean, he he, think about what he did. He married beer to baseball, and he introduced the the Clydesdales. I mean, this is this is you know these are big things. You know, these are big accomplishments, and and that was that was it. You know, and. You know, and wrap it all up in red with, uh, you know, some dogs sitting there. You got it.
0: William Nodelsatter, the book is Bitter Brew, The Rise and Fall of Anheuser-Busch and America's Kings of Beer. Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.